Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Alpine Church. It's great to see you guys here this morning. We are excited that you're with us. And in fact, if you're here for the first time, I just want to say again how grateful we are that you're worshiping with us today. We hope you feel right at home today, and we hope that we're able to help you pursue God today. My name is John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor up at the Alpine Logan campus, and I'm excited to dig into God's Word with you today, and I'm so grateful we decided to ease into the new year with a nice, simple, easy sermon series on the Trinity, right? The triune nature of Almighty God. But in all seriousness, I am really thankful that we are digging into a series where we are studying the nature of this powerful, almighty God who is so different than us, who is so set apart from us. And when you heard we were doing this series, you might have caught yourself asking, well, what's the point? If I can't fully understand God, then why are we going to do a series on His nature? Isn't this something that's really just all head knowledge, and it's not really going to have an impact on my day-to-day life? Isn't this something that, that really just theologians grapple with? Well, this may come as a shock to you, but did you know that every one of us should be a theologian? Really, a theologian is just simply someone who is gauged in theology, and theology is simply the study of God. Now, we've kind of put a a modern connotation with it where we envision a monk or we envision some stuffy academic who only focuses on the intellectual pursuit of God, and so it never makes an impact in how they live. But that's really not what the word means. It simply means someone who studies God, someone who wants to know more and more about him, and that should describe each and every one of us. In fact, shame on us when we turn our nose up at the Word or when we feel like it's not an endeavor that's practical enough for us. You know, I'm convinced after 27 years of marriage that I'm never going to fully understand my wife and she's never going to fully understand me. Does that mean we should stop studying each other? Does that mean I should quit trying to figure out what brings her joy or how she thinks? I don't think so. You know, at my house, it's my responsibility to load the dishwasher. That's one of my chores every night. But every now and then, if I'm sick or if I've just had a crazy busy day, because my wife is so wonderful, she'll load it for me. But when she does, she puts the silverware in right side up. How can you understand a person who does that? I'm like, I know you're from Wyoming, but were you raised in a barn? Like, what's going on? Because now when I empty that dishwasher, I have to grab the sharp end of the knife. And I have to put my hand on the end of the forks and the spoons that eventually are going to be in my mouth. Now, I usually unload the dishwasher too, but every now and then my kids will do it. I have two teenagers. Do you think I have any confidence their hands are clean before they unload the dishwasher? (laughs) Absolutely not. So I'm never going to fully understand my wife. She's never going to fully understand me, but we're committed to studying each other. And it's because we'll never fully understand God that we should study his nature. Because it's going to drive us to a deeper level of worship as we recognize that he is so much different than we are. He is so much more than us. And I would say this, anytime your mind is not blown away that the God of the universe invites you into a relationship with him, 
You either have much too high of an opinion of yourself or much too low of an opinion of Almighty God. There are other practical implications as well. If I begin to think that God is not that much different than me, then I may begin to think that I know what is better for me or for my family than God does. When things don't go my way, when things seem to be out of order, I may start to think that God messed up. In fact, I can forget that my perspective of fairness, of justice, of mercy is a tainted perspective. My perspective is tainted by sin. Only God truly knows what is fair and what is just and what is righteous. So this has practical implications for us because He is perfect. So I hope that you'll see why what we believe about God matters. And it matters in our day-to-day life. And so as we continue to dig into this series on God's nature, I hope that it drives all of us to a deeper level of worship, to a deeper level of awe and wonder of this amazing God that we serve. Because if you haven't had something come along yet that caused you to think that God messed up, you will. Eventually, something is going to come along that just rocks you and how you view God and what you think about His nature is going to determine how you get through that. So I hope that you'll remember that God is perfect and God is so unlike us. So I want to take a look at three truths of the Trinity today. Now, one of these we looked at last week, one we're going to cover today, and one we're going to cover next week. And so the first truth of the Trinity is there is one God. Now, we covered this last week all throughout Scripture. We see it reaffirmed that there is one God Uh, Last week, the passages that we looked at were Deuteronomy 6, Romans 3, 1 Timothy 2. All of these passages reaffirm that there is one God. Now, if you grew up going to church last week, you probably thought, yeah, I get it. (laughs) I've always heard there's one God. I understand that. Now, this week, we're going to look at the fact that that one God exists in three persons. And this is the one that's a little tougher to get our minds around because we've never met anyone else like that. We've never met anyone else who is one being but exists as three persons. But just like we saw last week throughout Scripture that Scripture affirms there is one God, we're going to see today that Scripture affirms that this one God has eternally existed as three persons. And then lastly, each of these persons is fully God. This is what we're going to look at next week. See, God the Son isn't God Jr. God the Holy Spirit is no less God than God the Father. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. Now here's an image that we've kind of been looking at over the last couple of weeks to help us understand this idea of there being unity in being, one being, but three persons. So we see that the Son is God, the Spirit is God is God. The Father is God. But they are also distinct in their personhood. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So again, one being, three persons. And the Bible shows that God exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And again, one of the reasons that's so hard for us to get our mind around is we've never met anyone else like that. Every person we have ever interacted with is one being and one person. So it's hard to imagine someone who is one being and three persons. But I would remind us that just because we haven't seen it before doesn't mean it isn't true. I've never interacted with anyone who is omniscient. That doesn't mean God's not all-knowing. I've never acted with anyone who's omnipresent, but God is still omnipresent. So just because we haven't experienced it before doesn't mean that it isn't true. And just like we saw evidence all through Scripture last week about there being one God, we see that same evidence about God existing as three persons throughout the Bible. In fact, in the very first chapter of the Bible, we start to see hints about this triune nature of God. So if you go with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So then God said, and God there is singular, He said, Let us, plural, make human beings in our, again plural, image to be like us, plural. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we see hints about the Trinity. Now, this doesn't completely explain the Trinity. It doesn't give us a full overview, but we see it right from the beginning. In fact, if we were to back up even further to verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, we would see this distinction between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit who is hovering over the waters. And we're going to see more about how each person in the Trinity had a role in creation. And then this becomes even more clear in the New Testament with the arrival of the incarnate Jesus. So we read in Matthew chapter 3. This is Jesus' baptism. And it says, After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. So all three persons of the Trinity are clearly present simultaneously in the story. God the Son, Jesus, was in the water of the Jordan River. Then God the Spirit descends upon Him like a dove. And as that's happening, God the Father from heaven says, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Now some critics will argue that the Trinity can't be true because all three persons are here at the same time. But that's a misunderstanding of the concept of the Trinity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, but they are all one God. And even though the English, English language fails to fully capture the truth of the Trinity, we've tried to be really careful about how we use our words. We've made a distinction in this series between the word being and the word person. So we don't say that God is three beings. We don't say that there are three gods. And we don't say that there is one person who is God. Instead, we say that God is one being one unified essence that exists eternally as three persons. Now, admittedly, even that word person falls short. 
Because when you and I hear the word person, we think a human. We think of something that has a body. That's not what the word person means here. You know, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit never became human beings. But we use the word person because each member of the Trinity is not an impersonal force. Each member of the Trinity thinks, speaks, acts, and relates like a person would do. That's what we mean by each, per- each member is a person. It's also important to note in our definition that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons. There has never been a time when God didn't exist as three persons. This didn't just start when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know, we just celebrated the birth of Jesus when we had our Christmas Eve services. That's probably my favorite service of the year. I love Christmas Eve. But when we celebrate that, we are not celebrating the beginning of Jesus. Jesus has no beginning. Jesus has no end. Jesus has always been. What we're celebrating is his incarnation. We're celebrating that time when he took on flesh and came to earth. Again, Jesus has always been. And we see that in places like John 1 and Colossians 1, that he's always existed. And I know it's, it's hard for us to get our head around that, but that's what Scripture clearly teaches. We're never going to fully understand it because we're finite. And God is infinite. All three persons of the Trinity are infinite. So one common error that happens that denies this nature of God is the fallacy of modalism. That there is one God who appears in three different forms. See, modalism teaches that God was successively the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but that God is never simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So so modalism teaches that these are three modes or three forms or three manifestations of the one person of God. So modalism says that God is sometimes the Father, God is sometimes the Son, God is sometimes the Holy Spirit, but He's never all three simultaneously. And that is an error. So for a modalist, the God of the Old Testament was the Father. In the incarnation, God was Jesus. And then after the resurrection and ascension, God came in the form of the Holy Spirit. But if that's your view, what do you do with the story of Jesus' baptism that we just read in Matthew? Where all three members of the Trinity are clearly present simultaneously and interact with one another. The most significant modern expressions of modalism are the United Pentecostal Church and groups that have the words Jesus only or oneness in their names. And I want to respectfully say two things about that. Number one, what I am saying is what the United Pentecostal Church officially asserts in their doctrinal statement. I am not saying that I know what every member of that church believes about the Trinity because I learned a long time ago just because a church issues a doctrinal statement, that does not mean every member of that church believes in it. And then number two, in fairness to them, they're trying to respect the oneness of God that we looked at last week, but they fall short in that they don't recognize that God is three distinct persons who not only simultaneously exist, but who relate with one another. I want to share another example of how they relate. This comes from Mark 
chapter 14, verse 36. This is Jesus talking. It says, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Here we see the relationship between the Father and the Son. The word that Jesus, has u- Jesus uses, this word Abba, that the closest thing would have to it in our language is when we call our Father Daddy. And we also see submission here. Jesus wasn't just going through the motions when he said, please take this cup of suffering from me. In his humanity, Jesus wanted that cup to be taken from him more than anything else except one thing. The only thing he wanted more than that was to do the will of the Father. That makes absolutely no sense if modalism is true. It makes absolutely no sense if the three persons of the Trinity don't simultaneously exist and have relationship with one another. Now related to this story in the garden, you may have had people ask you, well, who was Jesus praying to in the garden? If Jesus is God, was he praying to himself? Again, they don't have a clear understanding of the Trinity. Because the Trinity says that there are distinctions within the one God. We call them persons. So Jesus wasn't praying to himself. He was clearly praying to the Father. Jesus is God, but Jesus is not the Father. The other issue with modalism is that it denies this idea of relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. And that brings with it some very serious implications, if that were true. I want you to look at 1 John 4, 8. It says, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The other reason the triune nature of God is so important is because if God was not one being who exists eternally as three persons, that would make God needy. Here's what I mean by that. If God is love, there has to be an object of his love. So if God did not exist eternally as three persons, then that means God would need his creation to love someone. I hate to break the news to you guys, but God does not need us. God is a perfect, complete being, and he doesn't need his creation even to love. God is love. See, that has such practical implications in our daily lives because if we think God needs us, then that leads to us thinking that God owes us. And God doesn't owe us anything. Every good and perfect gift we have ever received from God is because of His goodness, His kindness, His grace, His love, not because He needs us, not because He owes us. In the book... Uh, doctrine, What Christians Should Believe by Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears. Here's how they expand upon that, and I love this. Here's what they write. They say, in other words, to declare that God is love is to confess that God is Trinitarian. In the very nature of God, there is a continuous outpouring of love, communication, and oneness because God is a relational community of love. I love that. See, the three persons of the one God experience love among themselves. They always have and they always will. That's impossible with modalism. 
You know, you guys may have used analogies like I've used in the past to try and explain the Trinity that accidentally promoted modalism. Maybe you've used the egg analogy of a shell and the egg white and the yolk, or maybe you've used water. You know, it can sometimes be vapor, sometimes liquid, sometimes solid. But in every one of those, they fall short. Here's what Wayne Grudem says in his book about some of these analogies. He said, sometimes people have used several analogies drawn from nature or human experience to attempt to explain this doctrine. Although these analogies are helpful at an elementary level of understanding, they all turn out to be inadequate or misleading on further reflection. See, the reality reality is any analogy you and I use from our human experience is going to fall short. Because again, we're finite people with finite experiences trying to explain an infinite God. And I hope as we think about that, that it would drive us into deeper worship of this God who is so unlike us. And that's going to bring us into our last point for today. We relate personally with each member of the Trinity as we discover their unique roles in creation, prayer, and salvation. I want to go through these one at a time. So we're going to start in creation. We're going to look at the different roles that each of the persons play. So in creation, the Father planned the work. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Father initiated it. The Father planned it. And we see the Son's role. The Son performed the work. John 1.3 says, God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. Him there is referring to God the Son, or Jesus. Colossians 1.16 echoes this same truth. It says, For in Him, meaning Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and through Him. So God the Father initiated and planned the work. The Son performed the work. And lastly, we see that the Spirit powered the work. Again, here's that Genesis 1-2 verse. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. So the Spirit powered the work. And the Hebrew word that's translated hovering here is only used one other time in the Bible. In another instance, it's a picture of a mother eagle hovering over her nest, hovering over her young. So this idea is of protection. Some scholars debate that the reason that word was used is that the Holy Spirit was hovering, was protecting in case the devil tried to get in and mess with the creation story of earth. So we see all three members of the Trinity there. Another place that we see all three members is in prayer. And this is, again, something that impacts us personally. This impacts the way we pray. So in prayer, we pray to the Father. In Matthew 6, 9 People had just asked Jesus, so how should we pray? And this is how Jesus responded. He said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. So Jesus said, in general, you're going to pray to the Father. But we do that through the Son. Hebrews 10, 19 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. The reason we can come to the Father in prayer is because of Jesus. In fact, we can not only come to Him, it says that we can approach Him boldly 
We can come to the Father with confidence because of what Jesus did on the cross. Lastly, we pray in the power of the Spirit. So we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. It's through the power of the Spirit that we lift our praises, our confessions, our requests to God the Father. In fact, you know, in Romans, Paul 8, Romans 8, Paul says, without the Spirit, we don't even know how to pray. But the Spirit intercedes with us, intercedes for us with God the Father with words and groanings that are too deep for understanding. How incredible is that? That God the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with God the Father with groanings that are so deep we can't even describe them with human words. All because of the Trinity, guys. And then lastly, we look at their role in salvation. The Father initiated the plan, John 10, 17 and 18. says, the Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. For this is what my Father has commanded. This is Jesus talking in John chapter 10. We clearly see that God the Father initiated the plan of salvation. The Son accomplished the plan. Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. So Jesus accomplished the plan. Jesus is the one who came to earth, who took on flesh, who went to the cross, who took on our sin, our shame. But even as Paul talked of that, he reminds his readers that God the Father planned it. We see both their roles again in salvation. And then lastly, the Spirit brings forth the fruit. 1 Peter 1, 2. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, we see all three members of the Trinity in this passage. God the Father knew you and chose you. It was God's plan. He initiated it. The Spirit has made you holy. And as a result, you have obeyed Him and been cleansed by what? By the blood of Jesus Christ, because He's the one who went to the cross. And we see all three members of the Trinity in salvation. So what does this mean for us? What's the practical application? Well, I want to talk first to those of you who have never begun a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I hope that one thing you would see is that God is for you. That God planned a way for you to have salvation. In spite of your rebellion, in spite of your sin, in spite of your brokenness, God desires for you to know Him and relate to Him in a personal way. And so to make that happen, He sent His Son, Jesus, who took on flesh, who went to the cross, who bore our sins, who paid the debt that you and I owe so that you could have a relationship with Him. And when you do that, then God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in and changes you. And gives you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. For those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus Christ, I hope the more we dig into the nature of God, the more it humbles us. And I hope the more that we recognize how much the three members of the Trinity love each other, I hope that drives us to love those around us. And when we see how the members of the Trinity have continuous relationship. I hope that that would drive us to want to connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ and have real community.
That is a Trinitarian life, and that is a life filled with joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are so unlike us. We thank you, God, that that you are so different from us. We thank you that you are a God who is perfect, that you are a God who is not needy. You are a God who doesn't need us even to love because you love among the three persons of the Trinity. But God, in spite of that, in spite of the fact that you are so unlike us, you desire us to know you. You desire us to have a relationship with you, and you made a way for that to happen. And for that, we give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory. And Lord God, for anyone here who has never put their faith in you, I just pray that today might be the day they take that step. You give them the courage to ask questions. Lord God, we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.